Welcome to Evan Makovsky's Business Podcast. I am yours truly, Evan Makovsky, and it's my pleasure to welcome Jared Friedland to the program today. He is the founder and CEO of The Playbook, a test prep and admissions firm that helps over 20,000 students per year outsmart standardized tests and maximize their chances of admission to college and graduate school. Jared studied English at Dartmouth College and instructional leadership at Harvard's Graduate School of Education and is a frequent speaker on EdTech, educational entrepreneurship, and the latest trends in undergraduate admissions. Appreciate you joining the program. Tell me about the playbook. Find the playbook services and the work performed on a day-to-day basis. Also, how did you start the company and get into the field? So what we provided, we provide a, a few core services. We provide what's commonly known as test preparation, which in our case is exam preparation for Tests like the SAT, the ACT, the GMAT, which is the exam to get into B school, to business school, the GRE, the MCAT, and a host of other exams. We provide specialized live online classes for those exams. And then in addition, we provide services for students who are really looking to gain a competitive edge to get into either college or law school, business school, medical school, dental school. So really admissions consulting for students who feel like they already have a pretty good sense of what they need to do, but they really need someone who's going to guide them and teach them about the rules of engagement and what they can do to maximize their probability of getting in. So in a nutshell, that's a highly, highly, highly abridged version of what we do on a day-to-day basis, but that's what we do. I I preside over a team of 29 full-time employees. So all of our employees are sleeves rolled up, myself included, involved in teaching, in curriculum development, and content. We actually take these exams that we teach students over and over and over again to really deepen our expertise. We're on the front lines of admissions. We have a lot of friends and consultants who are actual admissions officers and former admissions officers. So really for us, it's about strengthening our approach, deepening that expertise, and then really passing that along to our students and making sure that they feel like they're equipped to do well on an exam and making sure that they're in the best possible position, whatever their credentials are, whatever they are, that they're putting their best foot forward and they're in the best possible position to get into their number one college or or number one graduate school. You just hit on your suite of services, but let's Mm -hmm. just call it college admissions for the moment. Is college admissions really something that can be coached In other words, can you really improve a student's odds of admission? That's a a good question. You know, that's a question that I get fairly frequently. And the short answer is yes. College admissions is absolutely something. I I hesitate to use a word like gamed. I don't like the connotation of that word. But But it's certainly something like any other goal or endeavor where you can maximize your chances of success. So let me give you some examples. So let's take a pretty common example where a student will come to us perhaps sometime around junior year of high school. They already have the, the bulk of their grades in classes. They have their, their GPA is not quite chiseled in stone, but their grades are, are for the most part set. So a lot of people might think, well, you know, what can you really do for a student like that? Their grades are set. Maybe they've even already taken an exam like the SAT or ACT. You know, so what can you do for a student like that? Well, here's the thing. What we try to get students to understand is especially when you look at highly selective institutions, um, Ivy League schools, schools 
um, like Duke, Northwestern, U Chicago, Johns Hopkins, Stanford, uh, and again, and you know the Ivies. When you're looking at at really selective schools, it's not just about the quantitative information, like grades and scores. A lot of students come to us with stellar grades and stellar scores, and I've seen students like that who, without using our services or anyone else's, will get rejected from schools that they probably would have gained admissions to otherwise. And, and here's where I think we can really help to answer your question. So what we try to do is we try to get students to understand that college admissions, like so many other things, it's, it's a little bit like a game of chess. And you have to understand who's on the other side of that chessboard. When it comes to college admissions, the individuals that are on, on the other side of that chessboard are the readers and all the many members who comprise the admissions committee. And like all of us, they're human beings. They have desires. They have their marching orders from their bosses. And they have certain information that they're going to look at that's quantitative, like a student's weighted GPA and what's called rigor of courses, which is just a fancy term for how difficult a student's workload is. But then in addition to that, you have all the other factors, and that's really where we step in. So especially when it comes to really shaping a student's personal statement and his or her supplemental essays and all those compositions, that's to me where increasingly students can really differentiate themselves from the thousands, if not tens of thousands of other applicants, all of whom have also stellar credentials. Some of them, again, especially I'm, I'm focusing here on students who want to go to, you know, highly selective schools like Ivy's, like Johns Hopkins, like Duke, Northwestern, USC, et cetera. So for students who really have that as their goal, it's unfortunately, and I, I want to italicize, unfortunately, it's unfortunately that it's not enough simply to have really top-notch grades like straight A's and be taking AP classes. It's really important to be able to, in some way, come across as someone who's going to thrive at that school, who's a great match for that school, who's going to take advantage of the resources of the campus. And the way to do that is really in all the other aspects of the application beyond just you know your transcript. It's the essays and, and if you have an interview and the way that you comport yourself. To answer your question again in a, in a very roundabout manner here, and I appreciate you giving me the airtime, the real way that we step in and do so, the answer is yes, and the way that we step in and do so is to ensure that the student understands how he or she is going to be perceived by admissions officers and so that the student can then tailor that message to that particular university and also sometimes to the specific program within the university. Maybe it's a, an engineering program or maybe it's a program in the arts. We recently had a student right now who's graduating senior in, in um, a wonderful high school in, in Northern California and she is a professional dancer. You know, and, and really making sure that that comes through and with her portfolio and, and that's shining through. So hopefully that answers your question. But the answer is, is absolutely a resounding yes. Well, just a, a follow up on that, then I guess what percentages and we'll get into to testing a, a little bit in a moment. But what, what percentage of your time with the student who wants to go to those elite schools is spent on test taking? What percentage of the time is spent? And it could be different sure. for each one on, on the essay. What percentage you talk about their presentation, What I, that translates to me as how they interview. Is that what you're saying when you um, say their presentation? Secondarily, yeah, not so. Uh, interview is, is more to me. So there's, I'll, I'll answer that question. That's a great question too. I'll answer that by just giving you, because I know when you, you wrote to me, you said that you were really interested in exploring the world of 
of you know test preparation and college admissions you had read a little bit about it in the media but didn't too much about that world and you know i know that you, well, found you, me on you, Google, you so. know you know that i have 15 children so it's going to be something that i have to deal with continue <laughs> yeah absolutely that's yeah I, you will be using it you will you will make our you will single-handedly make our revenue right. for the entire year so to answer your question i mean it, it's not so much the interview the, the way that admissions works it's almost one way to think about it and, and again I'm, I'm really generalizing here but think about it this way you have your prime primary factors, your primary factors for the overwhelming majority of students. And but I, what I mean by overwhelming majority, I don't mean students who are one of the, you know, number one or number two, you know, football recruits in their state, or students whose parents uh, are, are donating, you know, tens of millions of dollars to an institution, and their last name is going to be chiseled into a dormitory. And I'm not talking about those students. I'm talking about students like I was and you probably were like students who are hardworking, for lack of a, a more descriptive word, normal students who fit into the the 90% of applicants. So for those students, here's the way that they're going to be evaluated. Your primary factors are really the, the work that you've done in school, and that's the way it should be. The grades that you've earned, your letters of recommendation from teachers, what's called a, a weighted GPA, which is essentially uh, a way of giving extra weight to classes that are more challenging. And then, as I mentioned before, a factor called the rigor of courses, which again is sort of just admission speak for how difficult those courses were, how much that student challenged him or herself. And this is key though, given the opportunities that were available, because if a student goes to a school where there are, it's not an international baccalaureate school, not a private school, there's no HL classes, no AP classes. If a student goes, doesn't go to a, that school, and I help a lot of those students each year pro bono, that student is not going to be penalized by an institution like Harvard for failing to take AP classes simply because they weren't available. However, again, if you're looking to target an elite level school and you go to a school that does offer those classes and you did not avail yourself of those opportunities, you will have a harder time. So, so again, primary factors, rigor of courses, grades, letters of recommendation, secondary factors. And then I'm going to put a little asterisk on this that I, I sense we're going to return to when we talk about trends and conditions. Secondary factors, typically standardized test scores like the SAT, the ACT, which are the two rival tests for college admissions, AP scores. Sometimes students will have to take other exams to get into specialized programs in engineering, but basically standardized test scores. And then tertiary factors, third level factors are really like extracurricular activities, leadership, other letters of recommendation, community service. So the interview is really going to go in that third level, that like tertiary level of factors. It's not nearly as important as the secondary and primary factors. And I, I had a glaring omission there, which I want to add, which is the essay, the personal statements. I would put those as somewhere between the first and the second factor, somewhere maybe straddling the line between a primary factor and a secondary. And here's the reason that I say that. There's a, a wonderful quote from an admissions officer from my alma mater from Dartmouth College from undergrad admissions, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she says something to the effect of, if you're someone who's in the bottom 20% of applicants, if essentially you're unqualified to go to a particular institution, then no matter how brilliant your essay is, your personal statement, you're probably not going to get it. That's just a fact. And if you're, let's say, someone you're in like the top 10% of an already highly elite group of students. Maybe you're someone who not only has those stellar grades, but you won you know, a prestigious science contest, like the Regeneron contest, or you are a, a truly elite level athlete 
who you know is being actively recruited by coaches, then guess what? I hate to say it, but your essay is probably not going to make or break things because you're such a compelling candidate already. However, if you're in that middle 80%, if you're a contender, if you're a viable candidate, but you're just someone like I was and a lot of other students who has great grades and great scores and you have great letters of recommendation, again, it goes back to how do you differentiate yourself and, and what that Dartmouth admissions officer said was that's where the essay can come into play. A student for whom on a scale from one to 10, let's say a student is somewhere like a six or seven in terms of getting into a little bit above average, a, a truly distinctive, memorable piece can sway the admissions officers. And isn't that worth it? To me, that it's really what it's all about. And I, I just want to say something too, though, because I don't know if you had planned to ask me this question, but just to clarify, we never, ever, we do not write admissions pieces for students. We will help them brainstorm. We'll help them edit. We will help them shape their story, but we are not, but my team and I, most of us are in our, our late twenties, thirties, and forties. We are not pretending to be you know, 17 years old. We are not doing that. There are missions consultants who do that. I absolutely refuse to do that. We will help you hone your story. We'll help you discover what's unique about your background and help you to, to write with the readers in mind. But we do not write essays for students. I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, yeah, go sorry, I'm gonna tie this follow-up question in to a question that I wanted to ask you, just on what you're discussing. Is the template now? I would gather maybe for Harvard and those schools, the template essay still need to be, if I recall, when I applied to college some sort of how you are a personal or professional hero, you know, you rescued people from drowning, you, <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying you yeah. served X amount of meals to the homeless. I want to tie that also into how has the admissions process currently changed from previous decades, but we can start with the essay. It's funny you say that because I actually wrote a book that we're going to try to get published fairly soon. And it has a, a tongue-in-cheek title that I, I won't share with you because it's a mouthful. But essentially, the, the, the idea is that there are a lot of students who, who are under this mistaken idea or notion that in order to present themselves as a unique, compelling candidate, and in order to have really good fodder for an admissions uh, essay, that you have to have done something that is so remarkable. <laughs> like, you have to have, like, you know, and I'm being serious, like, you, you know, yeah, you know. have to have, you know, like like uh, done a solo ascent of Mount Kilimanjaro, <laughs> yeah. or, or you played a Carnegie Hall, and let's face it, very few of us, right? Very few students. I certainly didn't do that in high school, right? To me, the, the best essays, actually, and I've been doing this for 16 years of my life. I've helped hundreds, if not thousands, of students, and my team helps several thousand students per year with this. The most meaningful, strongest essays are the ones that take something, instead of thinking really big, we always tell students, think small. It could be a family tradition. It could be a, 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 you know, something that happened one afternoon for you that was transformative in some way, shape or form. We had a, a young woman who wrote a really moving poignant piece about the tradition of lighting Shabbat candles in her family. You know, so it's like, it doesn't have to be something that is like a big, bold, you know, in fact, I think that those essays are often rather impersonal and, and rather transparent in that they're, they're trying so desperately to appeal to admissions officers 
When in reality, an admissions officers really want to get to know you as a human being. I mean, think about it. There are many, many members of the committee from readers and associate members and even faculty members who look at these, look at your profile and they want to get to know you as a human being. And contrary to what most students think, they're not really looking for reasons to exclude you. If anything, they're looking for reasons to include you. So give them that stuff. Like, tell them how you're going to be. What's meaningful to you? How will your past experiences help you to become a part of a vibrant community on campus? And to me, that, that's really the key. It's not about thinking big. It's about thinking small and taking something that is rather ordinary, like, a, a, again, lighting candles every Friday as part of a religious tradition and treating that thing that's ordinary in an extraordinary manner. That, to me, is really the key for an admissions essay. So I hope that helps. Good points. We've all heard, Jared, a lot about the recent scandal that engulfed college admissions, a scandal that even spawned a Netflix movie. Celebrities and business magnets were implicated in uh, hiring a very expensive, very unscrupulous admissions advisor who for years helped rich, famous parents and their students and their children, rather, bribe and cheat their way into highly selective colleges like USC. Is there such a thing as ethical admissions advising? In other words, is there a way for students to gain a competitive edge without resorting to illegal maneuvers like having someone take the SATs for you or claiming to be an elite athlete for a sport you've never even participated in? Although I was surprised by the manner in which that former you know, now disgraced admissions consultant went about gaming things. And and gaming is not even a potent enough word, but really like manipulating the system and and quite frankly, committing fraud, you know, so that that was an extreme example. And it really bothered me and a lot of my colleagues in this field because it it very much tarnished the entire field. And there there are plenty of individuals, myself included, and, and all of the about 30 people who work for me who are really committed to doing this the right way, not just helping students of means, but also helping students pro bono. So you used a a, a great adjective there, the, the word ethical. And to me, here's what ethical admissions means. It means, first of all, coming at this and getting a student to understand that college is a time for exploration, for career advancement, and to understand from the get go that it's not about choosing schools where You can place a sticker on the back of your Volvo and everyone in the town will know that you go to Columbia or Dartmouth or Princeton or Yale or, or, you know, name your, your fancy school. It's really about first finding a school where you're going to thrive. And that's the first step in in the ethical process to me is really helping a student to discover institutions that are going to be a good fit for them socially that will challenge them, where they'll they'll make lifelong friendships, they'll advance their career. That's so the first step in ethical is is really talking to a student and his or her parents and getting them to think about what they're going for and not just saying, you know what, here's the latest US news and world report rankings, all of which are incredibly subject to manipulation. In fact, there's a, a lot of controversy about Columbia University where my my sister went, a lot of a lot of uh, controversy about their latest ranking. I think they just de- debuted at number two, and that's a whole separate conversation, but not being so fixated with the rankings and what other people have said, but really thinking about where am I going to thrive? Where am I going to fit? So that's the first step in terms of being an ethical advisor. The second step is also thinking about, okay, well, let's let's make this non-stressful for you. Let's take a look at what your goals are, and let's keep them pretty broad at the outset, and let's reverse engineer it. 
So if your goals are, let's say you want to go to a school, uh, I'm just, you know, giving you a simple example here. Let's say you want to go to a school like MIT. You've always been very STEM oriented. You're a young woman in high school. You started a robotics club. That robotics club went on to win a, a statewide competition. And that's your, your dream, right? And it's, and it's so obvious in speaking with you and your parents that that's not something that you're thinking about doing because someone's put you up to it, but rather because there's something deep inside you that it's like a calling in essence to go to a school like that. Well, okay, great. So now it comes down to, okay, how can we make this process as non-stressful as possible? Because again, especially those students who are really targeting those highly selective institutions, many of which I've named, they, they get themselves into a real stressful process. And in fact, so do their parents. Being a parent of a high school junior and senior is not easy these days. There's a lot of attendant stress. So to me, part of the ethics too is let's be organized. Let's take your goal, let's reverse engineer it, and let's do all of this in a, in a logical manner with actionable goals along the way. Let's not cram it. So if you're studying for an exam like the SAT or ACT, let's not rush that process. Let's do it during a time period when you can really allocate the time. You're not going to get stressed because again, I'm going back to your central question here. Part of being ethical, it's not just this extreme example, like someone who's bribing and cheating their way into college. It's also about being a true advisor to that student and his or her family. And that includes students, again, who don't have those resources, who are pro bono, and getting them to understand, where am I going to thrive? What are my goals? How can I start marching toward those goals and keep my stress to a bare minimum? And then with that, too, the other ethical component is, as I mentioned a short while ago, empowering that student to do what he or she can, not doing the work for that student. We've turned down plenty of business from people who have offered us Sums that I would even be embarrassed to articulate to you on this podcast if we would only essentially impersonate being a 17-year-old. And, and I and my team will not do that. We will not do that. We will help you. We will edit. We will help you craft. We will help you put yourself forward in the best light. We'll talk to you about the rules of engagement. We'll get you a very deep understanding of the way that you're going to be evaluated by all the many, many members of the admissions team, including the junior readers but we will not do the work for you. So that's really, to me, again, my answer is a very, very strong yes. It is not entirely possible, or rather it is entirely possible and it is is 100% possible to conduct yourself in an ethical manner, but it requires doing everything that I just mentioned during the last few minutes in, in terms of the way that you guide students. Jared, from what I understand, many colleges have gone test optional for the next few years and the university of california has even gone so far as to declare themselves test blind are tests like the sat and act still important in college admissions or as important and where do you see this trend going do you possibly anticipate them going away that's certainly a hot button topic and that's a question that i also feel you know rather frequently and, and i would be speculating no matter what but Guess what? I'm going to indulge in a little speculation here as someone who's been doing this for a long time. So the SAT and the ACT, those arrival exams are are deeply, deeply entrenched. And I think that it's going to be very, very hard. I do not, if I had to predict, and I'm going to predict on your show here, I do not think that the SAT and ACT will ever, ever go back to a strict admissions requirement at any school. There are certain programs There are certain elite programs that do require admissions testing. 
And there are also certain circumstances in which you have to take the SAT or ACT, for example, for scholarships or students who are recruited athletes, including at Ivy League schools, have to take these exams. But other than those groups I just mentioned, I don't think that the SAT and ACT, which are the two rival admissions exams, will ever go back to being strictly mandatory. However, and this is a really big, I'm, I'm bold facing this, however, italicizing it, underlining it, 16-point font here. If you are looking to go to a truly competitive school or a very, very competitive program, then chances are you're going to want to take one of those two tests. I don't believe in taking them both, but you're going to want to take one of those two tests. Why? Because the vast, vast majority of the other applicants are still doing so. And, and a lot of schools, a lot of schools like the University of Pennsylvania have started releasing the data now from school, from the, the applicants from last year's admitted students, the students who gained admission. And what we've seen is that the overwhelming majority of students who gained admission still submitted their scores, regardless of whether the school was test flexible, which is a new term, test optional, even test blind, okay? So, so to me, it, again, it's, it's all about realizing that you're competing not a, against yourself, but against tens of thousands of other applicants. And so long as the vast majority of those applicants are taking those scores, or taking those tests rather, and submitting their scores, then to me, it, it does make sense to also study for those exams and uh, to take them as well. And I, I hope that, that makes sense. It does. Jared, when should students start using the playbook services and for any parents listening, how can they get started with you at the playbook? So they can get started with, with me and my team. I mean, we, we, we look at students, um, some of them as early as seventh or eighth grade and some of them as late as, as right before senior year. Those are, those are the, the, the opposite poles. Typically students will come to us sometime during sophomore or, or junior year. It is better if a student can do so and his or her family can do so to start a little bit earlier because this process again like so many others it requires planning this is not you know applying to college is really different now than it used to be and many students are applying to more colleges um you know so it, it requires a lot of forethought in terms of the classes that you're taking uh the extracurricular activities that you're engaging in uh, for example, a mistake that I, I see year after year are students who think, you know what, in order for me to be a really strong contender, I've got to sign up for like 17 clubs and I have to, you know, be part of Model United Nations and yearbook and, and journalism and track and I have to do all these various things. And then on top of that, I have to, you know, uh, I have to go, you know, climb this mountain over the summer and do charity work. And those may be all wonderful things, but that's not the way to go about this. I would much rather a student come to us, let's say at the beginning of sophomore year, and really discover something that, that resides within that student, okay? That's a deep, deep interest and passion, and let that student join that club, or even start a venture, or start a club, and move toward a leadership position. And that's the sort of advice that we can give younger students, but by the time a student is a rising senior, meaning a student who's heading towards senior year in, in high school, that advice, unfortunately, is not going to work because too much of the experience has already been chiseled in stone. The student has very, very little left to present himself 
or herself differently. So to answer your question, we really like to help students starting with sophomore year in high school. Failing that, students can come to us during junior year. If a student comes to us prior to senior year, then typically what we work on is the number one factor that we can still really make headway with, which is the personal statement and all of the supplemental essays that many selective schools require. And then sometimes we'll also help students with their final SAT or ACT. Some students will take that exam during the fall of senior year, typically in October. So we can also still help with that. But again, our, our strong, strong preference is to start helping students during sophomore year and failing that junior year is also really good. Jared Friedland, founder, CEO, and lead instructor at The Playbook. His website is learntheplaybook.com. Thank you so much for joining. It's uh, my pleasure, Evan. Again, I, I really do appreciate you having you know reached out to me. And as I mentioned, we will clear our slates when you got those 15 kids ready to start college admissions and test preparation. We'll give you a really good bull crate and, uh, and we will clear our candle calendars for a good long while there. I appreciate it. You're going to have like an assembly line of kids going to the, <laughs> going to the playbook. It will be consistent. Yes, we'll take them. A business's dream. All right. I want to thank Jared Friedland, founder and CEO of The Playbook. Again, learntheplaybook.com. I'm Evan Makofsky. Thank you for listening to this episode.